Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Hey TCC, my name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. Please open up your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 13, starting in verse 47, as we continue with our sermon series on kingdom parables. This chapter of Matthew is really one parable after another, sometimes with explanations, sometimes without. But these are pictures and images and concepts that Jesus gives us to communicate a truth about the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is like a sower going out to sow some seeds. The kingdom of God is like wheat being separated from weeds. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like yeast that works its way through the whole dough. The kingdom of God is like treasure that's found or like a precious pearl. And now we get to the last parable in this gauntlet of parables in Matthew 13. So let's read this. Chapter 13, verse 47. Here's what it says. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So that's the parable. The kingdom of God is like a dragnet. Big net captures a lot of fish, all kinds of fish, and when it is full, it's pulled in and the fishermen sift through it and they separate the good fish from the bad fish. And in case we were puzzled and confused as to what this means, Jesus succinctly explains the symbolism. He says, this is how it will be at the end of the age, at Judgment Day. The fishermen are the angels, and they will separate the righteous from the wicked, and the wicked will be thrown into a blazing furnace to a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place for the wicked, a place that sounds horrible, a place you probably don't want to end up. What we have here, then, is a simple and evocative picture of the Christian doctrine of hell. And it's simple. It's easy to understand. There are certainly parables, and I think we see some of them in our series that are challenging in several ways, but challenging even to understand. But this isn't one of them. It's simple. It's understandable. Even a child can understand it. But just because it is easy to understand does not mean that it's easy to hear. Even for Christians, the simplicity can be bothersome. Some Christians can fall into the mindset that to be accessible to children is the same as being childish, or that simple is the same as simplistic. And so the temptation can be, particularly among the more sophisticated of us, is to take simple parables and overanalyze, take every single detail and pull it apart and find the layers of meaning and hidden depth. I mean, these are the words of Jesus after all. You can't probe too deeply, can you? So I come from a film background, and there is a lot, a lot about filmmaking that is very, very deliberate. As a screenwriter, I can tell you that every scene on the page is carefully constructed and deliberate, and every line of dialogue is carefully considered. 
And that level of detail continues all throughout pre-production, production, and post. The locations are scouted. The sets are blueprinted and built and carefully and thoughtfully decorated. Costumes are intentionally chosen, not just for style, but color, and they have significance. Camera angles are chosen in shots and camera movements or lack of movement. Focal lengths and lenses are chosen, not to mention lighting and color grading. There's blocking and delivery and choices of the actors. And certainly the cuts and compilation of shots and editing are intentional. Every single frame in a film has deliberation behind it. And you can analyze it in depth. But you can also overanalyze. There's a documentary film called Room 237, which is about various deep diving and, frankly, crazy analysis of Stanley Kubrick's film The Shining based on the Stephen King novel. And because of various things in the film, you get wildly different theories. One person suggested that the film is Kubrick's confession about faking the moon landing because the room 237 refers to the mean distance of the Earth to the moon. Uh, still others saw elements in the film as being a reference to the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. Others thought it was about the cultural assimilation of Native Americans. And there's even a bizarre theory about minotaurs. And people will even see continuity errors and extrapolate some bigger meaning behind it. Do you guys know what I mean when I say continuity errors? My wife knows about them because I, I bug her about them. We're watching a film and I go, ha, did you see that? And I'll back the film up to show her the error. It's really kind of annoying. Uh, so films are shot in multiple takes and multiple angles, right? And actors try to do the same thing in each shot. And there's a person on set whose job it is to make sure there's continuity. So they'll tell actors things like, hey, Last setup, you grab that with your right hand, so be sure to grab that with that hand. But humans are fallible, and don't catch everything, and don't remember all of the details from setup to setup. And so pretty much in every live-action film, you will find continuity errors, where some scene shot to shot does not match perfectly. Easiest place to spot it and one of the most common is when you're dealing with liquids. They'll have a glass of something that they're drinking and the amount of liquid will rise and drop and rise and drop as they cut back and forth in a scene. It's an error. It's a mistake. It's a clear error. But people in their analyzing can look at even those kinds of mistakes and think it's deliberate and probe deeper into the hidden meaning of it. And I think Christians can be guilty of much of the same overanalyzing and probing beyond what is there to get to some secret and hidden meaning. And you can see the temptation there. If you could understand this fully just by reading the Bible, well, then what are you paying me for? See, no, you understand it on a superficial level, but you don't get the subtext and meaning behind the meaning, and you need me to probe the depths of it. If only you understood the original Greek, but sadly, you, you haven't studied that. You need me. And people write books about the secret meaning that they've unearthed and go on speaking tours outlining the subtext and the hidden meaning behind it. Many times, I don't even think that it's duplicitous. You know, familiarity can breed boredom. I've heard this story a thousand times. I know this passage. I know this parable. And we can actually grow tired of eternal truths and hungry for a fresh take or fresh perspective, a new way of looking at it. And where there's demand, there will be supply. You can see the temptation. Or maybe it's not job security or the need to be new and fresh and relevant. 
Maybe it's theological boasting. We can be tempted in that way. I mean, this parable fits very neatly into Reformed theology. And so we extrapolate out from it. See, salvation is a dragnet. It doesn't matter what you were doing or where you were swimming or any choice of yours. You are caught in the net of God's irresistible grace. It's about election. It's predestination. That's the point of the parable, you see. It's to bolster my theological predispositions. Never mind the fact that literally the previous parable was, quote, like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. All those action verbs in that parable suggest free will and volition and desire and action and response. Doesn't fit as well into Reformed theology. But that, too, I think misses the point. The point of that parable is not about human volition. It's to convey the preciousness of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is communicating, the value, the preciousness, the unrivaled worth of the kingdom of God. And likewise, this parable crumbles when we try to extrapolate out beyond its purpose by overanalyzing all of the elements of it. If you're a fish, and you are a fish in this parable, do you think it's a good thing to be caught if you're a fish? Would you want to be caught if you're a fish? The bad fish are thrown away, but what about the good fish? Well, they're killed and eaten. That's what we do with fish. That's why we catch fish. So is that the fate of the righteous in the kingdom of God? Will be killed and eaten? No, that's ridiculous. But that's what can happen when we extrapolate out beyond the point of the parable. The point of this parable is that in the last days there will be a judgment and the wicked will be separated from the righteous and the unrighteous will be cast away to something unpleasant. It's simple. It's easy to understand. But just because it's easy to understand does not mean that it's easy to hear. And many people, even those in the church, do not want to hear it. The doctrine of hell is deeply unpleasant to many. We'd rather talk about God's grace than his wrath. We'd rather talk about God's love than his justice. We'd rather talk about heaven than hell. But Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. He seems to think it's an important topic. He talks about it repeatedly. And there's repetition in parables all the time, right? The same concept presented in different ways. And in part, I think that so we don't get lost overanalyzing the details and miss the point. He's driving home a concept. He's driving home a point that we need to hear and understand. We see that repetition all throughout even this one chapter. The kingdom of God is like a treasure or a pearl. Same concept, different images. The kingdom of God is like a little yeast that works its way through the dough or a tiny mustard seed that becomes a big plant. Same concept, different imagery. And we see the same thing here, Matthew chapter 13. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. 
At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And again, if we didn't quite get it, Jesus explains the parable. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Same idea. Judgment is coming, the angels will sift through, separating the righteous from the unrighteous, and the unrighteous will be cast into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is telling us the same thing about the kingdom of God over and over again. Pay attention. Don't miss the point. Judgment is coming. The righteous and the unrighteous will have different outcomes. So which side are you going to be on? He who has ears... Let him hear. It's easy to understand, but it can be hard to hear. And to the point where people will simply deny this simple parable. It's more complex than that. God is too loving to cast people into the furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The good fish and bad fish really end up in the same place in the end. And people twist Jesus' words because they don't like what they're hearing. The truths of these parables are not good enough truths. The kingdom of God that Jesus describes isn't good enough treasure. We can do better. We can tell the parables as he should have. I think for us at TCC, as a church, we aren't that way. I think we accept Jesus' words. I think we accept the truth that Jesus is conveying. I think we do. But I'm not sure that we delight in it. We may accept it, but maybe only begrudgingly. And deep down, maybe we're even kind of embarrassed by it. But what does Jesus say? Verse 51. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like an owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Okay, so if you are a disciple in the kingdom of heaven and you're a teacher of the law, if you teach these things as a disciple, that's like an owner of a house bringing out treasures. These teachings are valuable. These teachings are important. These teachings are precious. These teachings are used in service for the good of the household and people's well-being. The teachings of Jesus is never something for us to be embarrassed by. The teachings of Jesus is not something we should take begrudgingly. It is a treasure to us. This parable is treasure for us. The doctrine of hell is treasure for us. God is holy and just and righteous, and in the last day, God will unleash his holy wrath and his righteous anger, and it will be glorious and good. This is good news for us. It is good that God will bring an end to evil once and for always. It is good that God will punish wickedness and wicked doers. It is good that God knows the difference between good and evil. It is good that God can perfectly and rightly discern the good fish from the bad fish. All of this is good. This is a precious truth, as precious as hidden treasure or costly pearl. 
Hell is a triumph of God, not a failure. Hear these words from Psalm 7. Arise, Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God. Decree justice. Let the assembled peoples gather around you while you sit enthroned over them on high. Let the Lord judge the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. Bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. You, the righteous God, who probes minds and hearts. My shield is God Most High, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. If he does not relent, he will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He makes ready his flaming arrows. Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. Do you see the goodness of God's justice there? And what Jesus is telling us in our parable is that what the psalmist is longing for will come to pass. He will gather the peoples around him, all kinds of fish, and he will decree justice and judge the peoples. He is a righteous judge who probes the hearts and minds, and he will bring an end to the violence of the wicked and will make the righteous secure. And isn't that such great news? Shouldn't we long for that day? We look around at our world, and it's just filled with evil. We have decadence and perversion, and child abuse and, and sexually confusing uh, children, mothers fighting for a right to kill their unborn, another mass shooting on the 4th of July, assassination of Shinzo Abe in Japan, war atrocities in Ukraine, starvation and violent uprising in Sri Lanka. Everywhere, all the time, there's rampant evil. And people who constantly call good evil and evil good. Don't we want the righteous judge to act, to render his verdict? This is a precious parable for us. And it is a comfort to us. It is. You know, I I can look around at the evil of the world and be overwhelmed by it. It drives me insane when I hear people lie and they call good evil and evil good. When they lie and I see masses of people believe the lie. It can fill me with hatred and anger and rage. Now, there is a righteous anger. There is a holy and righteous way to hate and be angry. And we should have that at times. But so often, our expression of it is far from righteous. James tells us this. He says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. How can we love our enemies? How can we pray for those who persecute us? Well, that's really hard if I'm the one who's sitting in judgment. Because all that generally comes from me then is hatred and rage. But if I turn it over into the hands of the righteous judge, if I accept the truth of this parable, I'm liberated from that. And I can rest secure in the outcome. Romans says this, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
See, we can love and pray for our enemies and treat them well because we have confidence in the righteous judge. And one of two things is going to happen. Either they will repent and be redeemed, and they will become a source of joy for us as brothers and sisters in Christ, or they will be held to account. No one is going to get away with anything. And God's wrath is far more terrifying than mine and always perfectly righteous in expression. Isn't that good news? Isn't this treasure? Don't we long for that day? You know, God expects the righteous to long for that day because he explains the delay. Let's go back to the parable, verse 27. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And the apostle Peter tells us this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Good and evil, righteous and unrighteous, are going to have to be mingled together for a time because God is still at work redeeming people. And when the end comes, that's it. The net is not full. Not yet. Now, if we believe the teachings of Jesus— If we have ears to hear this parable, then the natural question would be, what must I do to be counted among the good fish? The Christian answer is simple. It is easy to understand, but it might be hard to hear. Because the reality is, it's not really about what you can do. It's about what Jesus has already done. The hard truth to hear is that none of us are good. All of us are deserving of hell. You cannot come to Jesus as your Savior if you do not believe, if you do not accept that he is saving you from something. That is Christianity. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus, by his perfect life, by his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, pays the price for our wickedness. He saves us from our sins. He saves us from hell. He redeems us. He restores us. He takes the evil and he makes it good. He makes us new creations and gives us new life if we place our faith in him. Very simple. Easy to understand. Even a child can get it. Here it is. Here's what the Bible says. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. If you haven't done that, today is a good day. Oh, don't think that any sort of cultural Christianity will do anything for you. Don't think I'm good because my parents are Christians or I grew up in the church. Or you can be caught in the same net just by hanging around us. But that doesn't mean you'll be counted among us unless you too have placed your faith in Christ. If you have ears to hear these words of Jesus, if you believe his words are true, then follow him in obedience. Give your heart to him, place your faith in him, and you will find new life. And you will find peace and rest for your souls and rejoicing in his righteous judgments. Amen. 
Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.